Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer, and Special Guest Colin Lowe, Chartered Financial Planner at King Street Wealth. We've just entered the month of May, which investment circles every year resurrects the debate on whether you should follow the old adage that advises you sell in May and go away and don't come back till St. Ledger's Day. Despite the fact we are in the age of online trading and sophisticated technical analysis, this old saying generates a lot of interest and has sparked a tremendous amount of analysis and academic research over the years. Emma, you've been looking at this issue. Why do some highly educated experts of a great technical knowledge believe in this old rhyme? Um, It's a good question, Leonora. And over the years, many researchers, as you said, have looked into it. Um, including Investor Chronicles' own economist, Chris Dillow. And they found that there actually is a seasonal pattern. Um, Stock markets worldwide tend to do worse in the summer, generating weaker returns than they do in the winter. So, for example, an academic paper um, published a couple of years ago compared the six months between May and October with November and April in, I think, about 109 countries. And they found that on average... The summer months, so that was from May to October, um, tended to be coming much weaker at about returns of 2.5%, whereas um, during the winter months, returns were close to 7%. Um, and that's, you know, 109 countries. So pretty, um, you know, compelling evidence in that sense. And so therefore, if you're using that as your guide, you would be more likely to gain results, um, good results, better results during the winter than in the summer. And that's why um, some of, some experts feel that it is better to sell in May and, um, you know, expect that your returns will be better during that period. OK, but um, turning to the other side of the debate, why do other experts say you shouldn't sell in May and go away till St. Ledger's Day, which, by the way, is in September? Mm, yes. Um, the main reason why they say that it's, you know, it's better just to buy and hold is because of the cost of trading. So, I mean, if you're going to be trading in and out of your holdings in May, selling in May, and then, as you say, buying again in September or in October, as, um, as some of the other researchers have looked at, you're going to be racking up costs. Um, and you could also sort of crystallise any um, capital gains tax, which could which could hit you as well. So um, there's an ag- argument for costs, but there's also the argument for losing out on the dividends that you would have received if you'd stayed in the market. And so um, people who don't, you know, appreciate the, don't want to follow the sell in May strategy say that those are issues that you need to consider. And when you weigh up those um, costs and the potential loss of dividends, actually, it's not such a good thing to do. Okay, but um, are there any solutions to um, the costs of trading and tax? Well, um, you know, people who feel that actually buy and hold is a better strategy for the reasons that we've just um, mentioned feel that it's just better just not to bother um, just don't bother the hassle don't sell your your um, holdings in May and just um, avoid it that way avoid the the tax and um, hits and, and trading costs from that way but if you do if you are sort of convinced of the case for um, better returns in, in winter and not wanting to expose yourself to the fact that the market does tend to do worse in the summer months. Um, if you're able to switch funds or um, SIPs in some cases for free, because some brokers allow you to trade 
um, those assets for free, that might be a way of, of, of getting the benefits of seasonal investing. Okay, and um, presumably if you trade within a, a SIP or an ISOVAPA, you also don't incur capital gains tax. Indeed. Okay, so it's possibly an option in those circumstances. Now, just thinking of another reason why you might want to do it, there's almost certainly going to be market volatility this June with the upcoming referendum on whether to stay in the European Union. So is this a reason to maybe follow the adage just this year, even if you've never done it before? Um, again, they're, they're kind of two sides to this story, Leonora. Um, and it depends whether, you know, you think what you think about the likelihood of a Brexit and whether or not you're, again, convinced by the Salon May um, approach. So if you are convinced and you think that actually um, you know, we may see um, the UK vote to leave for the EU in June, then arguably there is a case for, for, for selling out um, this month because we may get um, higher volatility. We might see a sell-off if, if there's an outvote, for example. Um, but on the other hand, if you feel that actually it's more likely that for there to be a Remain vote or you're a fan of the buy-and-hold approach, um, it might just be better to stay invested because, I mean, on the other side, we might see a rally if, if there is a um, an Remain vote. So it, it depends on what you think is... Um, it depends on what you think is, is likely to happen and depends whether or not you agree with the selling May um, approach. OK. Now, Colin, what's your view on selling in May and going away till somewhere around September? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's there does appear to be some evidence that it has worked over the years. And bizarrely, I was actually here this time last year having a conversation with, with Chris on this very subject. So he was right last year. No doubt about it. It definitely seemed to work. Um, I suppose um, Emma's research has been really interesting to, to just demonstrate both sides of the argument. Personally, I just would argue that if we're investors, then we're in for the long term. Um, and the, the issue is if you're, if you're a speculator, in other words, you're happy to move in and out of the market, then maybe it's the right thing to do. But I just think as an investor, you're really there um, with, with the objective of, of receiving dividends, receiving something back for the holdings which you have. Mm. Um, in, now, we, we spoke about some disadvantages mm. uh, of doing it. What would you single out as, you know, the kind of like the greatest disadvantages to this chopping and changing and selling yeah, uh, think, with this approach? I think there's two key disadvantages. The first thing is timing, timing your re-entry into the market. It's fine if you've got a pile of cash. It sounds great, doesn't it? But when do you go back in? Um, and if you end up going back in at exactly the same point that you left, then you haven't really gained anything at all. In fact, from a mm. cost perspective, you, you, you have lost. And of course, you haven't had dividends either. So I think timing re-entry is, is a key issue. I think the other thing, and, and there's quite a lot of academic research on this, and actually Fidelity have put together some very interesting research, which is missing out on good days. Uh, mm. They've done lots of research on if you just miss out on the 10, 20, 30 good days within an investment period, what you can miss out on. And if my memory serves me correct, I've just been thinking about this while Emma's been talking. I think it was August 2009, the market went up 10% in one month. Um, and uh, and of course we'd already had a bit of a, a rally from the low point in March 2009 and people thought oh no the, it's going to sort of settle down over the summer 
And so there was a 10% gain just in one uh, in one month that, that would have been missed out on. So I know that there may be anomalies in the evidence and there might also be plenty of uh, evidence in both sides of the story. But my view with my clients is that we're here to be investors over the longer term rather than trying to time markets. It's time in the market rather than timing the market that often matters. Okay. Um, one thought that occurred was, um, you know, is um, part of the decision on whether you do it or not um, relate to the type of investments you hold? And what I mean is, for example, if you're in shares, there may be an instrument for short-term bets, trading, wheeler dealing, whatever you like. Whereas if you're a fund investor, um, especially in funds that pay dividends, you probably a buy and hold long-term investor? I think you're absolutely right. I think if you're somebody who enjoys that sort of I'm going to use the term dabbling. I don't mean it in the sense of it's unimportant, but it's something where you quite enjoy the time of looking at share prices and and almost day trading on them. Then, of course, it's going to be of much more appeal to see a trend and and use that. I think if you're outsourcing those investment decisions to a fund manager through an investment trust unit, trust or an OIC, then you're really using uh, their skills to time the market, to time the trades, to look for opportunities to purchase assets when values are lower and to sell them when they're higher. So I quite agree with you. If your view is to outsource that investment decision to enable somebody else to do that for you, then you've really got to let them get on and not look at what the calendar says. Okay, some really useful points there. Um, And uh, yeah, maybe think carefully before you hit the sell button and head off to the beach for the next four months. Uh, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is a popular member of IIC Top 100 Funds and has also been one of the most successful global, global, global sector investment trusts of recent years. Um, now, this trust has recently announced that it's going to ask its shareholders permission to invest up to a quarter of its assets in unquoted companies. Moving substantially into what is a potentially much higher risk area than what the normal um, sort of global equities funds invest in is quite a radical move. So last week, Kate headed north of the border to find out firsthand from its manager why this already successful trust is taking this tack. Um, Kate, what reasons um, did Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust managers give for this um, move into unquoted companies? Uh, well, basically, there was a, a real sense that James Anderson, who, who is the manager of the trust, has just kind of lost faith in some ways with um, with the public markets. And he just seemed to be saying that they're just the exciting opportunities now. They're not in the public markets. They're these private companies. And he's talking about these companies which actually don't need to go public anymore in order to raise money. So it's things like Airbnb and Uber, you know, some of those stocks which, or not stocks, some of those companies which are, you know, in the headlines all the time. I mean, the reason being many of these are kind of techie companies and they're very asset light. So actually they don't need to kind of submit to the rigours of quarterly reporting and, you know, going to going to public markets because actually they're, they're raising a lot of money privately um, and are more free to, you know, invest over the long term and kind of do what they want. And he just seemed to be saying that actually where we're finding innovation now, uh, where the exciting kind of growth is coming from are these companies and not the, the big name stocks that you generally find on markets. Okay. Now you mentioned techie companies, um, but yeah, generally, what kind of um, kind of sectors and areas are these illicit companies in that he's investing in? 
Well, the thing about Scottish Mortgage is that they invest in these quite exciting companies and they come from a big range of sectors, but they've got this kind of theme of technological disruption running through their whole portfolio. So uh, they would be against saying this is a tech theme that you know this is a tech sector portfolio it isn't but the thing that is running through all of this is is you've got companies which are just really shaking up major industries whether that's in biotech or commerce or whatever so in fact it's quite hard to pigeonhole their stocks as you know all these unlisteds will be you know e-commerce or whatever but James Anderson did say that they're particularly interested in healthcare and biotech going forward when you've got some really exciting companies working on you know cures for the, our biggest diseases and and things like that so things like CureVac a German pharma company but these the unlisted stocks that they're looking at come from a really wide range of sectors. Okay now you said exciting but exciting often equates to higher risk so is doing this going to substantially increase the risk of this investment trust? Well it's an interesting question isn't it because I mean the concept of unlisted, you think of early stage companies, you think of, you know, companies earning no money, which are very likely to fail. And particularly in biotech, where some of these startups, you know, all their hopes are pinned on one drug or, or that getting um, regulatory approval. And if that fails, the whole company is going to fail. That's the image you have in your mind. Now, they would say, actually, that's not the kind of company they're investing in. Because the nature of some of the unlisted stocks now is they're much further down the uh, stage of development than in the past. These companies can actually get to a massive scale without needing to go public. So they would say that the kind of companies they're looking at are not dissimilar to the companies they're looking at in public markets. So in that sense of loads of these will fail, they would say no, not much riskier. But actually, James Anderson was very sceptical of this whole conversation about risk um he has as do many managers a real aversion to the idea that volatility equals risk what they're saying is yes you know maybe nine in ten of these unlisted will come to nothing but that one that succeeds will succeed so well (laughs) that it will outweigh all of those others so what they're saying is yes look this is going to be volatile but we could be backing the next facebook here and that's what we're trying to do we're trying to get a few winners Um, And so, in fact, this isn't riskier than investing in public stocks because, you know, the winners will be unlisted. Well, fingers crossed. Mm. Um, On on the subject of these winners, how does James Anderson and his team go about um, choosing these hopeful winners? Well, it seems to be a a lot of meetings with managers that, you know, they spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley talking to these companies and finding out, you know, who who the best people to back are and they've obviously got quite a big bank of researchers and things so it's very much kind of face-to-face meetings and, and is he completely disillusioned with listed companies no i mean in fact the interesting thing about him is and he doesn't really draw this distinction between um public and private company in many ways what he talks about are founders of companies specifically so rather than thinking of stocks he's more likely to talk about you know Jeff Bezos at Amazon or Robin Lee at Baidu and in fact across Bailey Gifford it seems and certainly in Scottish Mortgage what they want is to invest in companies where the founder has you know a big stake still um, just because of the way those companies tend to be run so they're very interested in Amazon and Baidu and a lot of those kind of big name Silicon Valley stocks which we've all kind of 
come to know a lot about. Uh, so no, definitely not totally disillusioned with public companies, but maybe disillusioned with public markets and the way uh, the way those are run and this kind of obsession with quarterly reports and, and on profits rather than on long term, uh, you know, a long term vision for a company and how that might develop over time. Okay. Um, Colin, what do you think of Scottish mortgages moving to um, more unlisted companies? Well, first of all, I'll declare an interest. It's a fund that I hold and uh, we do use it in some of our model portfolios. But um, I have to admit, since reading the article, um, I have felt somewhat uneasy uh, about the move into unlisted companies. Um, I've, uh, Kate's uh, explanation of that has been really helpful, actually. So thank you for that, Kate. Um, but I'm just concerned not so much about volatility and an increase in risk. My biggest concern with any unlisted stock is is a lack of liquidity. Um, I mean, just thinking particularly of the property bubble that we had in 0708, and then there was a lack of liquidity there. People couldn't get out. Um, the regulator has expressed concerns about liquidity in corporate bond funds within the last couple of years as well. So liquidity is just a concern. Mm-hmm. I mean, I th- I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Neil Woodford left behind quite a number of unlisted stocks when he left Invesco Perpetual. Mm-hmm. And it took quite a long time for Mark Barnett to offload those. So I think it's an issue that just concerns me that when things are going up, no one worries about it. But when the market is more volatile and perhaps there's more redemptions from the fund, what's going to happen then? But then I suppose they'd argue it's an investment trust. We don't have redemptions. Uh, yeah. no, I, I appreciate that, but mm. people still need, want their money, don't they? So it's it's still going to be uh, there. There will come a time where people are going to want to do that. And we've got a lot of long term, you know, children's investment funds and those sorts of things in there. So we're hoping that it'll do exactly what it's supposed to do. But yeah, I can't deny. It. I just got a few concerns about it. Yeah. Now, um, do you think Mr. Anderson's team can be as successful with private company investing as listed equities? Because I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on their backgrounds, but as I understand, they you know they, they've proved themselves brilliant with listed companies, but it doesn't mean they can invest in unlisted. That, that's absolutely right. Although I think they hold about what, sort of fifteen percent or so at the moment in unlisted, uh, uh, or fourteen, fifteen percent. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we already got some. They, they must think, be. So. Well, they must be pretty good mm-hmm. at what they're spotting, and and I think that's the thing. They're, the performance of the uh, of the company is 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 absolutely outstanding. You know, long term, short term, whatever you look at, is is remarkable. Uh, so they have been exceptional at what they've what they've produced up to date. So I hope so for the sake of our, both our investors and the long-term investors within that company, I'm sure that they'll they'll have the best intentions in mind. And in fact, it, they were quite interesting on that point that James said that he felt they'd actually been better, their performance had been better with the kind of unlisted and that more venture capital side of the business than they had with the larger stocks or the larger listed stocks, which is partly, he said, why they want to move into this, because they feel that's where their expertise lie, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, encouraging, certainly. Now, Colin, you um, um, mentioned liquidity as a concern. Do you think risk is a concern? Do you think that, um, you know, this is going to substantially increase the risk of Scottish mortgage to the point that you might move some, perhaps less, um, kind of like uh, you know, high risk clients out of the investment trust. Uh, I think it's something we will consider. I think in some ways there's lots of specialist aim managers and uh, 
and managers in, in that sort of start-up field uh, who have a great track record just in that area. Um, and I think it's sometimes easier for us, certainly when we're managing a model portfolio, to say we want uh, the growth stock aspect in terms of start-up or small company unlisted to be in a container so we can really clearly identify it rather than it being in a, a larger fund that has a mix of all sorts of different strategies within it. So I think we've really liked the global approach that Scottish Mortgage have used up till now and we'll really just have to keep monitoring it to see where we go in the future. Okay, I mean on that note, um, this um, Investment Trust Scottish Mortgage, it's ranked by the Association of Investment Companies in the Global Sector Trust where people go thinking going to get a basket of global equities. Do you think it's still fair to categorise um, this as a Global Sector Trust? I think it'll have to be down to the AIC on that one. Uh, I'm sure they've got uh, got some studies going on as to, to whether it should continue in there or not. I think this is where looking at the 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 uh the pile that a fund is in isn't the only thing you need to do they're not all the same and i think this is a really good message for us that just because something's in equity income it doesn't necessarily it produces income or whatever you know there's there's key things that certain things have to be um involved to to, to qualify but they don't all behave the same way so actually this is a really good message just to say actually just because something's in a sector they're not all going to perform the same um it'll be down to the aic won't yeah. it, as to whether it stays yeah. in that sector but i think you should just look really carefully at what's actually inside any any portfolio that you hold yeah yeah look under the bonnet definitely yeah okay thanks colin for that um and the date um on which shareholders will vote on whether to amend scottish mortgage investments policy is the 30th of june at its annual general meeting um, now, this week's Portfolio Clinic features a reader constructing a portfolio not so much for himself, but rather his wife, specifically to provide a retirement income for her. Um, although he's a very active and enthusiastic investor, his wife doesn't share his passion. So he also wants his portfolio to be such that it won't need too many adjustments if he passes away before she does. Colin, you were one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio. So first of all, can you realistically construct a portfolio for any given purpose and expect it to keep delivering without making any checks or adjustments? I would say no. <laughs> and I think that was one of the things I was trying to convey in the article uh, of saying that, that um, you can start off with the best of intentions. But as we've just been talking about, a really big um, company that is now going to change some of its underlying profile, I think it just proves the point that you can't just buy a fund and hold it. Um, perhaps if you are keen on passives uh, and you're happy to just buy an index or a tracker, then you can do that. But as I'm not a fan of that either, then I would argue, no, you need constant monitoring and reviewing of the underlying holdings. And it would be fair to say that indexes um, change. I mean, the FTSE balances, what, four times a year? Exactly that. I, yeah. I would argue this is just mm. like having your car serviced, that you wouldn't expect it to maintain the same parts for the next 20 years. There are things you're going to need to plug in and change and replace and, and, and upgrade as time goes by. OK. Now, with a car, you obviously do a yearly MOT, but um, how often should you MOT your portfolio? Ah, well, that's it, exactly. <laughs> I, I would say, again, the more mileage you put on your car, the more often it should be serviced. Uh, an MOT is just keeping it legal, but servicing keeps it in tip-top condition, doesn't it? Um, so I would suggest that, actually, the, the greater the value of your portfolio, the more often you should be reviewing it in the same way there's mileage on a car so for, for example you know there are many of our clients that we would see every six months there's some that we'll see quarterly many annually and it will just depend on the value of the funds they hold and often how often 
someone who's concerned about it as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it sits with them. And obviously within that review, we will then look at the underlying holdings and see if there's anything that needs to change. Right, so basically what you're saying is at the bare minimum at least once a year. I would say at yeah. least once a year, exactly okay. that. Okay. Now, thinking about our region, the portfolio clinic, I mean, this isn't a problem while he's alive and um, able to do this. And he, he's obviously very active and, 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 and checks things. Um, but what would you suggest his wife does um, if she is left in charge of the portfolio? Yeah. Um, well, he, first of all, he's doing a fabulous job. Sometimes we have a look at these portfolios and there's lots of things we can pull apart. It was really difficult to dismantle this and be critical at all because the portfolio is absolutely superb uh, and he's very knowledgeable and applies some really good uh, common sense uh, to the holdings. The difficulty comes, as you say, when you have a, a party of a often in a marriage in a relationship where one person's active and loves it and gets very excited by it and then uh, whoever survives the opposite is true so we would suggest I mean first of all it might be helpful to find someone who could then help if he wasn't around and I did put as a strap line at the very end of our comments maybe get to know a good chartered independent mm. financial advisor but then I, I declare again a vested interest <laughs> in that as well that that's obviously where we're coming from but that said you know there may be somebody else who uh, you know he has a reliable friend or colleague or something like that who, who could assist but I think it's something that we do find quite a lot of people who are widowed or, or, or divorced who, who suddenly have assets to, to look after that they really have A, had no interest in and B, no understanding uh, and they just need someone to guide them through and help them. Mm. Now, one of the other commentators suggested um, leaving his wife a tracker fund, some cash and gills. Is this a bit too simplistic? It's well, Chris Dillow, actually. Chris, Chris, yeah, of course, Chris, yes, yeah. yeah uh, and again, as I say earlier, as I said earlier, that, that mm. uh, you know, using a passive solution could just be exactly the right thing to do because you just sit on it. Um, I would argue that just guarantees you underperformance for the foreseeable future rather than being able to, to have the possibility of, of, of outperforming. But again, that's just the view that the worldview that we have as a business. Um, so, yeah, I think that way you are then just following market returns. Which, of course, if you expect the market to go up in the long run, then it's a very cost-effective way of doing that. Okay, but it um, is boring. You're right. Is yeah. that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was saying boring. I mean, it's just um, I don't know. It's it's not going to do much. But um, then his wife thinks investing is boring. So that, yeah. But that might be exactly yeah. what she needs. And yeah. again, personal yeah. circumstances and an mm. individual's uh, feeling about this is really, really yeah. important. And, mm. and I know we're sort of treating this quite generally, yeah. but it might be exactly the right solution. Okay, but t- turning to more general things, I mean, away from, you know, this specific reading as wife, um, you know, if you know, an average investor whatever has assets like an investment portfolio, are there certain things they can do to make it easier for their spouse or partner to deal with in the event that they die before them, especially if there's a spouse or partner doesn't like investing yeah, in finance. Right. Well, I think one of the key things is just pr- provide simple records. Um, I know that sounds like, again, a very dull thing, or oh, make sure the administration's good, but mm. uh, actually it's so important. And again, we've been involved in cases where people didn't know that funds existed or, you know, there was something stuffed in a drawer and they didn't know what that meant, weren't aware that there was an ISA or a pension. Just try and keep some good records so that, that people are aware of what's what's available, whether that's a surviving spouse or whether it's the family. Um, because they in turn, uh, we provide folders for our clients so that they can keep everything in nice order and, and, and explain what gifts they've left behind for inheritance tax planning and all these sorts of things. So just trying to um, arrange things in such a way that that can help. Um, but I would suggest, again, it may well be is is almost prepare the flight path in terms of get someone who's trusted and available who could then look after 
um, the situation um, on the death of, of the key driver of a portfolio uh, so that someone else can step into the breach and help. Okay, some useful points there. Now, you said it was a good portfolio, but a very notable thing about it is that it's largely composed of investment trusts, because in the reader's own word, he is rather prejudiced against open-ended funds because of a failure of many of these to disclose their portfolios in full and their general level of charges. Um, What I thought there was, um, is it actually still the case that investment trusts are mostly cheaper than open-ended funds, or with the introduction of clean share classes over the last few years, is this assumption rather out of date? Well, first of all, it was true. Um, Undoubtedly, it was true. Uh, I would doubt that it's that clear cut now. Mm. Um, Again, it would be a case by case basis. And of course, they're two different animals. One obviously can raise capital uh, by leveraging, the other can't. Um, One can defer income, the other can't. So there's all sorts of of differences between the two. But generally, from a cost perspective, I think they're very, very close, if, if there's any difference at all. And the other thing is, I think there's some really good open-ended managers out there who run OICs and unit trusts who don't run investment trusts. And just by um, being so focused on investment trusts only, you can miss those great fund managers. And we, we just highlighted a couple, but yeah, um, there, there's, some others, there's some others out there who, who are great at what they do, but they just don't run investment trusts. So don't miss out on the great returns that are available with other fund managers just because you're thinking investment trusts are the only way forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other part was comment related to transparency. Um, but I think the point is Neil Woodford, for example, fully discloses all the holdings in his open-ended CF Woodford Equity Income Fund. While there's a number of investment trusts, and I'd say probably generally more among the esoteric fund sectors where I certainly struggle to dig out much information. So mm. can you really say that, you know, um, open-ended funds are untransparent and investment trusts are transparent? You know, it's a... Well, all that I would say is mm. I haven't had any mm. issues in getting information on an open-ended fund. If we mm. want to look at a fund and look at every single holding inside it, it's very easy to find. There's uh, websites out there that could be used. Um, but also approaching the managers, they will they will provide that that information. Uh, again, I, I don't think there's a lack of transparency on, on those issues from, from how I understand it. We probably haven't looked at some of the esoteric uh, investment mm. trusts that you have, so that's interesting. Mm. That you, I'm thinking about you know, these kind of very strange kind of like um, you know feeders into offshore hedge funds. Yeah, you sure, know. sure. I mean, I'm not accusing you know the likes of Scottish Mortgage and, and no. you know other very transparent mainstream trusts. But, that's right. I think um, that's it. Generally, yeah. I think most information is available. Certainly on, mm. on 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 most collectives, I think it's available now. Okay. Now that's all we've got time for this week. So it just remains to thank Colin Lowe chartered financial plan at King Street Wealth um, and Investors Chronicle Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. You can read more on whether to sell in May, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and setting up a hassle-free retirement portfolio in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.